Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the podcast where we discuss air power throughout history. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. I am your co-host, Brian Lasley. Today, we're talking about an exciting topic. We're talking about stealth and the development of stealth technology in military aircraft, which is a really big game changer, really in the mid-70s and goes on to affect uh, military aircraft today. We're here today with Peter Westwick. Peter Westwick has just written a new book entitled Stealth, the Secret Contest to Invent Invisible Aircraft. Peter's a research professor of history at the University of Southern California, and he's the director of the Aerospace History Project at the Huntington USC Institute on California and the West. He's also the author of several books, including Into the Black, JPL and the American Space Program, 1976-2004, which won book prizes from the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and the American Astronautical Society. Peter, thanks for being here. All right. Thanks for having me. Glad to join. Yeah, uh, so let's just dive in and tell us a little bit about this aerospace history project, uh, what it is, what it does, and how that got you into this particular book project. Right, so the, the aerospace history project goes back to, I was working on the JPL history, actually, and I was talking to a colleague at the time, I was at Caltech, and I was talking to a colleague who does California history, and I was trying to situate JPL, you know, Southern California is obviously an epicenter of the aerospace industry in, uh, in, the, uh, in the U.S. So I want to say, what did it mean for JPL to be, you know, in the kind of, in this epicenter and this context. So I said, you know, what what archives might I use to try to explore this uh, this aerospace hotbed in Southern California? And he said, well, as far as I know, there are no real archives on, you know, aerospace industry, in, uh, specifically in Southern California. Um, so we started talking about how important, obviously, aerospace was to the history of Southern California over the past century. And we said, you know, somebody should, you know, there's no archives really out there, which is why nobody's really written about aerospace in Southern California per se. Um, so we said, you know, somebody should really do something about this, which, of course, was uh, our fatal uh, last words, because the somebody who's going to do something about it turned out to be us. Anyway, long story short, this is about 15 years ago, and we went to the Huntington Library. Um, Huntington has an interest in history of science and technology, but also California history and business industry. Uh, business history, aerospace sat right at the intersection of those. So the Huntington jumped on board. They have these fantastic resources, you know, world-class research library. So uh, we set up a collaboration between USC and the Huntington to start documenting the history of aerospace. Uh, so that included an archival component, you know, collecting uh, corporate files and especially personal papers of people who worked in the business and also uh, doing oral histories. Um, so over the last 12 or so years, we've collected a bunch of archival collections, uh, but also um, done about 60 or so oral histories. And some of those oral histories were with people who worked on stealth. So actually, I didn't set out to write a history of stealth. I was just, it was, I was working on this archival project and I started doing these oral histories. And the more, you know, each person I talked to said, uh, you know, who worked on stealth said, hey, you have to go talk to so-and-so. So then I'd go talk to so-so and get another angle on stealth. And over you know, over the years, I gradually realized like, hey, there's actually a pretty interesting story here, which I haven't seen in any of the literature before. So that's kind of the background on the Aerospace History Project and how it kind of led me into even thinking about uh, working on stealth. Uh, you know, before we dive into the, the book proper itself, I think it's worth, uh, if you want to give us a quick explanation of what stealth, as I use my air quote fingers, is or is not. Right. Uh, that is a good question. So I think the kind of popular assumption is that stealth means invisible. And actually, stealth does not necessarily mean invisible. I think the term that a lot of the actually engineers and the military people prefer to use is low observable, which means primarily radar. B basically, essentially means it's hard to detect by whatever means. 
for aircraft, that's usually radar. Um, so the, the primary focus is on reducing the radar signature or uh, in technical terms, the radar cross-section of an airplane, which is basically how large an aircraft appears on a radar screen. Uh, so if you hit it with a radar beam, you know some airplanes based on their shape, on their materials, on their size are going to look bigger than others. So stealth is an attempt to reduce that radar cross-section of an aircraft. Uh, but it's not just radar. Um, it's, I mean, ra radar is by far the largest uh, emphasis, uh, but they're also trying to make it uh, harder to see visually, so in the visible wavelengths, harder to detect by infrared or heat. So say reducing the heat uh, emissions from the engine exhaust, harder to detect uh, acoustically by sound. Uh, so, you know, if you can't see an airplane, but you can hear it coming, well, then you can still try to shoot it down. So you're trying to reduce all of those possible ways to detect an airplane, um, but the primary focus is on radar because radar is, you know, the primary way that air defenses detect and track an incoming aircraft um, that is trying to uh, attack your forces. So this quest to make aircraft that can get past these defenses is obviously a big deal, especially coming out of, say, the Vietnam War or, or other conflicts where aircraft are facing massive losses to these kinds of defenses. How far back does this desire to create a plane that can get past these defenses where, how far back does that go when did this really start i mean it goes all the way back to world war one uh, which is the real kind of you know combat debut of, of airplanes um, in warfare then radar didn't really exist then uh, there the primary emphasis was on making them harder to see so there's all these uh, efforts at visual camouflage you know trying to paint air, uh, airplanes so they were harder to see from the ground so you'd paint them to match the sky uh, they'd throw in these kind of confusing patterns to try to make them harder to detect against the background. So, and there was actually some pretty concerted uh, and scientific efforts uh, during World War One, at least in the U.S., to do so. And then after that, there was this kind of the usual back and forth between offenses and defenses and warfare. In this case, air air defenses trying to figure out how to detect incoming airplanes before they could uh, get to you and drop bombs on you. And that kind of that kind of seesaw pendulum goes back and forth. In the 30s, it looked like it was pretty much impossible to detect incoming aircraft. Then radar comes along. Long. The advantage swings actually to the defenses. And then uh, you have jet aircraft, makes it harder to detect these things in time. So it kind of goes back and forth. But really by the 60s, you know, the Soviets in the Cold War poured humongous resources into air defenses. They had a long, you know, with World War II, they had this uh, tremendous ingrained fear of surprise attack, especially by aircraft. So air defense was a huge focus for them in the 50s and 60s. And by the late 60s, they'd built up this incredibly formidable network of radar-based air defenses um, around the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc in, uh, in Eastern Europe. So there was already, you know, the U.S. was already facing this problem of how do we, you know, if we have to go to war against the Soviet Union, how would we deal with this problem of the Soviet air defense system? What was even more immediately daunting was, as you mentioned, the experience in the Vietnam War, whereas these Soviet-made radar systems in North Vietnam that were just uh, tremendously devastating to uh, American aircraft uh, over North Vietnam. And just they, they really opened the eyes of military uh, planners in the United States to say, like, hey, these things are just, they have the advantage. They're beating us. And the same thing with the Arab-Israeli War in 1973, similar Soviet systems there uh, really devastated the Israeli aircraft, uh, and it was a more definitive proof that you know the Soviets really had the advantage, and that the United States needed to find some way to counteract that advantage. So that's kind of the strategic background for by you know by the 1970s. That was the context for kind of the strategic motivation for doing something about this problem. 
Yeah, and this obviously there's a lot of companies and the military itself is invested in trying to solve this problem. And what I really like about your book is kind of the framework that you've used to set all this up. I was trying to explain it to a friend of mine. I was like, it's almost like this tale of two companies, right? Where you've got two different aerospace companies that are solving this problem, but in very different ways. Can you explain a little bit about like what these two companies are doing and how they're taking different approaches? Right. Uh, so what it always, what it struck me um, just as kind of a casual observer of the business was even before I had this professional interest was that, you know, you look at the two stealth aircraft and you just look at the B-2 and the F-117, look at pictures of them side by side, and they just look different, right? You know, this one has this, you know, the F-117, the stealth fighter has this tremendously, you know, it looks like a UFO. It's got these angles and facets and all these flat panels just kind of put together. And I mean, the metaphor I use in the book is like origami. It looks like flying origami. And then you look at the B-2 next to it and the B-2 just looks aerodynamic and it's sleek and it's curved and it just looks like a, like an airplane. Uh, but they're both uh, the solution to the same problem of how to make an aircraft hard to detect by radar. So just the pictures of them alone seem like a pretty intriguing puzzle, like a very simple but intriguing puzzle. Like how did they, how did these two companies arrive at these two different approaches, two different philosophies, the same problem. So as I was doing these oral histories with all these engineers at the two companies, Northrop and Lockheed, I started realizing that the stories they were telling me kind of revealed the two, how the two companies arrived at these different solutions. The one Lockheed being much more reliant on, you know, computers and computer modeling. And that's how they, they were so reliant on computer modeling. That's, you know, so computers could model flat panels. The metaphor, again, that I use in the book is kind of like, it's like a drunk looking for his keys under, under streetlight, you know, <laughs> Because that's okay. That's what I can do. So that's what I'm. That's where I'm going to look. So I'm, I, I know I can do it with the computer. So that's how I'm going to do it. And the computer can only do flat panels. So that's how I'm going to do it. Northrop was much more open to um, what the engineers call phenomenology, what you or I might call informed intuition. This is not to say that it was simple because it was highly mathematical. And Northrop had actually a really highly developed theory group in radar physics starting in the early 60s. So they could tap into these tremendously powerful theories of diffraction uh, and scattering of radar waves. But also they kind of, they had these, it was kind of like the thought experiments that the quantum physicists were doing back in the 20s. How, thinking about how radar waves behave around objects, modeling them with clay. So whereas a lot of the Lockheed stories that I was hearing uh, involved, you know, these computer programs and, you know, developing, you know, we do, spend all day working out a new iteration of the code, plug that in the computer with the punched cards, come back the next morning, the computer would spit out a new iteration of the solution. We'd look at that and then go through iterations of that with the computer program. The stories I heard from the Lockheed, uh, from the Northrop side rather, were, you know, we're doing these, you know, modeling with clay and then we take this model out and put it on the radar range and see what we got and thinking about how the radar waves and how these models are producing these various returns that we're getting. So two very different, it seemed like kind of almost philosophies of design revealed in these two um, in these two companies. And that's and those philosophies are what led them to these two strikingly different aircraft. I mean, I was struck. So my going back way back, well, not that far back, but you know, my dissertation research was on the National Lab System uh, in the U.S., including the weapons labs at Los Alamos and Livermore. And as I was hearing these stories from the aerospace engineers, I realized like this: there's a distinct parallel here to what eventually developed with the dynamic between Los Alamos and Livermore, where we have these two, you know, fierce competitors to develop uh, new nuclear weapons designs. And uh, Lockheed, or rather, uh, Los Alamos, was known for its, you know, physical intuition, and it had, you know, these really advanced physicists, nuclear physicists who were thinking about, you know, their preferred approach was to really understand the physics from a really profound sense and uh, try to understand, you know, what's going on inside a nuclear explosion. Livermore's, by contrast, 
was much more computational and computer-based. Kind of like Lockheed, you know, they were much more about let's develop a code that can model these things and we'll do iterations of the code and over enough iterations, we'll get something that approximates the uh, situation inside a nuclear bomb. So these really striking parallels to what's going on in the nuclear weapons program is also happening in the stealth program, it seems, in these two different design philosophies. That's fantastic. I was really blown away by this idea of the clay modeling being something that's being actually used by the engineers. Did, did these guys have like an art background or, or is there a connection between art and engineering there? Like what's happening with that? Because we think of engineers, you know, in this mathematical way, but they're not really, they're doing more than that. Yeah, I think, I mean, so a couple levels to that question, actually, you know, they were not, I mean, it is striking how they were, you know, playing with the clay and um, like to goof around with it. You know, I don't think they had art backgrounds, but I think, I mean, one of the things that's why this is striking is you think about, you know, this stealth is this amazingly revolutionary breakthrough in, you know, aerospace engineering, which seems this, you know, really esoteric and technical mathematical discipline. And it seems like, you know, modeling with the clay just seems too simple. You know, it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem sophisticated enough to satisfy the demands of these incredibly high performance aircraft, which are going you know, close to the speed of sound, have these amazingly micro, uh, minuscule uh, radar signatures. Uh, and it seems like, you know, Play-Doh doesn't quite, you know, doesn't really seem sophisticated or complicated enough to explain it. But uh, I mean, that's one of the things that kind of attract me is what these kind of seeming paradoxes to it and uh, just... I mean, as an aside to this, that's another thing that, that drew me to this story is that, you know, in these oral histories I was hearing from these engineers, uh, what really was striking is that they're talking about these, you know, not only arguments, but like shouting matches, like almost coming to blows with each other over these, you know, technical issues of you know, how do we design the plane? You know, do we use curves? Do we use flat facets? Do we incorporate more aerodynamics and make it more aerodynamically satisfying? Or do we uh, incorporate more radar physics? And all these compromises that are usually, usually you know, any engineering practice uh, involves compromises. But to hear just how um, unbelievably passionate they were and these arguments, you know, these shouting matches and cursing each other out and you know, again, the image of the aerospace engineer is, you know, extremely rational and logical and dispassionate. And we're just going by the numbers and the numbers will tell us the solution. And this, you know, almost like, you know, Spock on Star Trek. And the stories I was hearing was not that, right? You know, it's these guys, almost all guys who, but just had this, you know, just raging passion because they were so caught up in the challenge of building these airplanes. And they were almost like, almost willing to fight their colleagues over it, certainly willing to chew them out uh, verbally. So uh, it was just completely contrary to the image, I think the popular image of the aerospace engineer. You know, one of the things I love in the study of history is things like geography and environment and location really matter. Uh, and as I sit here and I will, will self-describe myself as a lover of all things Disney, you make some really interesting connections with the development of stealth aircraft and Disneyland, but from a greater perspective, Southern California in general. And can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah. And again, this kind of goes back to my, you know, the original interest for the aerospace history project is, you know, what did it mean to have so much of the aerospace business in this country concentrated in Southern California? You know, why did that happen in the first place? You know, why did Southern California become the epicenter and not, you know, Dayton, Ohio or uh, Long Island or any of the other places, you know, Seattle, Washington, any of the places that had, you know, aerospace business going back to the 
outset, you know, why did Southern California become the place? So our project is kind of documenting that. And, um, you know, we actually did this edited collection called Blue Sky Metropolis, which talks about, you know, the many reasons why Southern California, not just the weather, but all kinds of things, you know, boosters, uh, uh, labor unions, uh, research universities, et cetera, et cetera. But one of them is this kind of kind of fascinating aspect, I think, is this kind of it's this intangible culture of, you know, writers from, uh, you know, Neutra to Wallace Stegner and uh, more recent uh, have described, you know, uh, Southern California in particular is this kind of, you know, this great laboratory of experimentation, this kind of, this where the future is being made. California is kind of the now scene, you know, this kind of very creative, risk-taking, entrepreneurial laboratory of experimentation. And, you know, what did this mean for uh, the aerospace business? And so in the book, I tried to kind of explain some of this context and, you know, why was it that you know, there were, so the aerospace business was concentrated in Southern California, but there are a number of aerospace firms, including a lot of firms that made, you know, fighter aircraft are not in Southern California. But why was it that the two who succeeded at doing stealth were only the ones in Southern California and not elsewhere? So I, I think there's something to it. It's hard to, you know, these cultural art, cultural explanations in history are often a little bit of hand-waving and there's, that's not the kind of concrete influence of cause and effect that you'd like to think of where you find a, you know, a policy document or an economic statement or something. So it's more suggestive than concrete, but still, I think it's more than a coincidence and try to understand, you know, and and like you, Brian, I'm very interested in place and, you know, what place means, especially for technology. Because again, I think the usual view of science and technology is, you know, the the laws of nature are universal. You know, the laws of physics are the same in LA or Moscow or anywhere on the planet um, or anywhere in the universe for that matter. So therefore, you know, aerodynamics are the same everywhere. Radar physics are the same everywhere. So if you're going to do a stealth plane, it's going to look the same no matter where you build it. But even with Lockheed Northrop, we already saw that these two planes look very different. Uh, and we know from other aircraft, you know, looking at, you know, Soviet aircraft, for instance, we know that place does, you know, technology does reflect the place of its production. There is some cultural influences on this. So, you know, for for stealth, it's a little more suggestive and hand-waving, but I still like to think that there's something, you know, there's no direct cause and effect that I can draw, but I think there is something there that helps explain why it was only these two firms in Southern California that managed to produce stealth aircraft and no firms anywhere else. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's a connection that I'm really glad you made and really brought that out. It's not something that occurred to me and probably didn't occur to most people, but it's really interesting. There's another aspect of kind of the stealth story that gets passed around a lot that I wanted to ask you to clarify, and that is the role of Soviet research in kind of discovering stealth. And there's this kind of rumor that, oh, this Soviet engineer figured everything out long before the Americans did, and then we found his research. And we're talking particularly about um, this name I will probably mispronounce, but it's Peter Ufimsev, or something mm-hmm. to that effect. Yeah. But uh, tell, tell us a little bit, because I think that story sometimes gets spun a little bit larger than, than maybe it really is. Can you clarify his role in this process of discovering stealth? Yeah, I think I mean I think there is a bit of mythology involved with it, in part because it's just such a it's it's such a neat story. So the story is there's this obscure Soviet physicist by the name of Pyotr Efimsev who's working at this radar research institute in Moscow. Not to get too deep into the physics, but um, he's a physicist and he's there's problems of how you describe in the mathematical physics how radar waves scatter from an object, whether the object is a flat plane or a cylinder or a sphere or a tetrahedron, whatever. And one of the problems is 
is how the radar waves scatter from the edges uh, of an object or where two objects come together. So existing theory as of 1960 or so was unable to explain exactly what radar waves did uh, comprehensively um, around these boundaries of these simple objects. Ufimsev came up with a theory that did so. The problem was his theory was, first of all, it's a very obscure guy and is also published in Russian. But what happens in the early 70s is some American researchers run across his uh, article they asked uh, in Russian, uh, but it had been run through a, a translator by the Air Force. It's actually a guy at Northrop who then tells his colleagues in the radar group, like, hey, you might want to read the work by this guy. And then they do so. And then they say, like, hey, this is what we need. And then so the story goes, you know, Ufimsev's stuff revolutionizes. Um, it's the it's the, it's the the key. It's the missing link. So as usual in history, it's not quite so simple. Um, actually, Lockheed didn't make that much use of Ufimsev's stuff early on. It's funny because kind of Ben Rich's book, which is kind of so far has been one of the standard history. You know, it's the it's his memoir about the skunk works, but it had, talks a lot about uh, the the stealth aircraft story. And uh, you know, Ben Rich was a great storyteller. You know, unbelievable raconteur. Ben Rich recognized a great story when he saw it, and he saw this Ufimsev story. So he kind of played up the ben, the, the Ufimsev angle. And since then, that's kind of the start of why people focus on Ufimsev. So Lockheed actually, when you talk to the Lockheed people who were working on it, they say actually, you know, we didn't really incorporate that until kind of some of the later generations of the designs and the actual initial designs, which kind of set the original template, they weren't really influenced that much by Ufimsev. Uh, the people who were actually probably more influenced was the Northrop team. And you talk to their theorists, especially, and uh, they will say that, you know, Ufimsev was kind of that, for them, it, it was, you know, a crucial part of their understanding of how to design these aircraft. So more influential on one side than the other. The kind of neat coda to this, I guess, is that, you know, I was interviewing this one, the theorist from Northrop, who was saying, like, how important Ufimsev was. And this theorist was like, you know, we used to go around, I tell the story in the book, but it's, you know, when we're working in the design room, we used to sing this song that this guy came up with. And it was Go Ufimsev, but to the tune of On Wisconsin. So, you know, if you know the On Wisconsin, <laughs> On Wisconsin, but they're marching around the design room saying, Go Ufimsev, Go Ufimsev. So, anyway, um, but it turns out I was talking to this guy and he says, Well, you've talked to Ufimsev, haven't you? And I said, Well, no, I haven't. You know, how could I unless I fly to Moscow? And he says, He's living just across town in LA from you. Why don't you go look him up? Here's his number. And I said, are you wow. kidding me? And he said, no, he moved here after the Cold War. So I called up Ufimsev and, and also this Northrop theorist, his name was Ken Mitzner, said he's like, not only that, but he's a delightful guy. He's a great friend of mine and you'll love him. And he was right because I called up Ufimsev and Ufimsev said, I'd love to talk to you. And I spent an afternoon with him. And he's a delightful, unbelievably charming uh, guy. So maybe I'm also guilty of maybe overdoing the story just because it is such a great story. So I tried to inject some realism into it. And again, there's a bigger point here, I think, in that you know, the usual assumption is that for this, you know, highly classified secret technologies like stealth, you know, it's got to be completely domestically developed. You know, it's so classified, you know, beyond top secret that, you know, surely we've kept this secret from the Soviets. And so the kind of irony, I guess, of actually, you know, the Soviets made a crucial contribution to this. And it really highlights the role of international communication and exchange among scientists and engineers for a lot of things that we take to be, you know, vital technologies for national security. I mean, starting with nuclear weapons, which, you know, nuclear weapons are well known to have, you know, a wide array of uh, streams from various places feeding them that made them possible. But if you look at, if you peel back a lot of Cold War technologies, you'll also find that there were crucial, com uh, crucial contributions from scientists and engineers in, in other places, like the X-ray laser. 
which I studied a little bit for Star Wars, the missile defense program in the 80s. You know, the X-ray laser, which is kind of the, the public centerpiece of Star Wars SDI, the X-ray laser had crucial contributions from a visit from one of the Livermore uh, physicists to a laser lab in the Soviet Union. So it kind of another example of how, you know, scientists and engineers, they talk to each other, and this is how ideas circulate. And a lot of time, new ideas and new concepts come out because of these international connections. And even for, you know, the most highly classified national security technologies, a lot of times they have these similar kind of undercurrents of international collaboration to them. So I thought that was kind of a neat, there's a, there's a bigger point to make from this defensive story. Uh, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, I think there's a certain amount of Cold War nostalgia that is occurring, a, a certain zeitgeist in American memory right now. Uh, for example, you have uh, the TV show The Americans, where you had yeah. these these Soviet actors who were living in America, and one of the subplots of that TV show was them on the hunt for stealth technology and trying to get the uh, the radar cross section information and and all of this these different aspects of stealth to, stealth uh, to get it back to the Soviets. Uh, and you kind of hit on this uh, to a degree that one of the challenges in writing about stealth is the classification. I mean, code word level programs, uh, lists of who can know and who cannot know. Uh, and so what was your research process like? How did you go about uh, having to deal with the problem of classification or overclassification in writing about uh, stealth technology? Right. Uh, I guess there's kind of two levels to that. And one is the kind of practical aspect on my research, practical impact on my research. And then the other one is kind of the actual historical problem of secrecy and classification and how that played into the actual development of stealth aircraft. So, I mean, for the first part, you know, my usual approach and my training as a historian has always been, you know, you get into the archives and you park your backside in a chair in the archives, whether it's, you know, a national laboratory or uh, the National Archives in College Park, and you sit there for several months years maybe and then at the end of all that research you've got your well what used to be my stack of note cards now it's my stack of documents on my laptop but you come out of there with your stack of three by five cards that's you know growing <laughs> uh, and then you you boil all that down through this tremendously inductive process into a book so for stealth that wasn't possible there's just no archive on stealth aircraft you know we we have a few documents uh in our aerospace archive ben rich papers kelly uh, kelly johnson papers but mostly this was much much more. And I did, there were some archives, especially for the strategic context at the Hoover Institution and the Reagan Library and other places that I could kind of tap into. But it was not nearly the, you know, the Sitzfleisch uh, model of historical research. Uh, it was much more oral, his, oral history driven, interview driven. It was definitely a departure for me. And I had to kind of get my mind around the fact that there were some things. And, you know, as always is the problem with oral history is, you know, memory is fallible. You know, documents are also uh, fallible, but oral history, you've got to be, there's particular methodological problems you have to grapple with. And I mean, they became clear to me because just from the basic level of, you know, I was hearing for particular parts of the story, I'd talk to five people and get three or four different perspectives on this one data point. You know, the, the person who brought Lockheed in, you know, I heard like from five different people, I heard like three different answers to that question. And then it just becomes a problem of, you know, kind of triangulating, okay, which account do I think is the most trustworthy? And I try to make that clear in the book, like where I've tried to do this kind of uh, interpolation to arrive at the most likely account. So that uh, so, so is, is much different than the approach I've pursued in the past. I still, but I would still think, you know, it's a, it's a different research approach, but I still think the history as is as important. And I think is, you know, eventually the archives will open and people will come along and correct me. But I still think, you know, first order, you know, I like to think that asymptotically I was approaching 
what we might think of as you know what actually happened. So that's the kind of first order uh, or first level thoughts about the secrecy and classification. The other question, of course, is the the issue of secrecy and classification in the program itself and in the uh, in the aerospace business and what it meant for the people who worked in it. And um, I don't know if you want to expand on that or not. I think the the oral history element that you bring is not only really refreshing because it kind of gives us some fresh eyes on the program that even though we don't have new documents necessarily, we have these kind of new perspectives that you're bringing out. And you also are able to put kind of a human spin on these stories and give us that kind of human connection. And yeah, if you want to talk a little bit about what classification was like for those folks, yeah, let's let's talk about it. Yeah. Well, again, so that's, and again, one of the, one of the things that struck me early on when I was first listening to these oral histories was um, just, again, the passion and the arguments and all that stuff and the personalities and the characters. And there was, I mean, the, the stealth story, it was just this fascinating range of characters. I mean, Ben Rich, who's this great rock and tour, but these very strong personalities and, and kind of distinctive personalities. So I thought it would be uh, neat to kind of be able to bring in some of that color to the story because it, that was part of it. But the other thing that I was hearing in these stories from the engineers was, uh, especially from a few of them in particular was you know they're talking they're you know they're talking about you know the the passion that they have invested in this project but also the toll that it took on them and especially from the impact of secrecy and classification and working on these incredibly classified projects and the kind of you know as the one uh, one of them put it to me is like you know look we gave up our civil liberties in order to protect American civil liberties in the Cold War and it was you know a, a lot of uh, several of them spoken fairly uh, kind of profound and even moving language about the toll it took on them and their family. Now, you can't tell uh, your spouse or your family, you can't talk about your work at home, first of all. You know, you can't come up and work and say, boy, let me tell you about my day, what I worked on. It's very cool stuff. Or, you know, I'm going out to the test site for a week or two weeks or several weeks at a time, but I can't tell her I'm going. I'm just going to be gone for a few weeks. And here's a telephone number that you can call if anything goes wrong. These kinds of things. Uh, and then the more kind of psychological costs, I guess, of what I guess like a theorist would call, you know, internalizing the surveillance, if you want to put it in kind of Foucauldian terms. But, you know, the one engineer who commented to me, he said he was talking about it wasn't he wasn't on stealth. He was just working in the aerospace business, but he was talking about his career and he said, you know, and he's having trouble kind of like, it was kind of these awkward pauses and he finally kind of explained, he said, you know, you have to understand, it's very hard for me to talk about this stuff. I spent 40 years trying to be a gray face. And then he kind of went on and kept talking, but I was, I mean, it kind of like struck me dumb for a second. Like, you know, I spent 40 years trying to be a gray face and think about what that means. Just, you know, you're trying to be inconspicuous. You're trying not to spill anything and just uh, to have an entire industry, an entire region with hundreds of thousands of people with security clearances, you know, not all of them as kind of self-reflective on what it means for them, but to have this entire substrate of Southern California society who have this mindset, to me, it's, it's you know, it's again, it's one of these things that is really hard to put your fingers on, but it, to me, it seems like a very profound characteristic of American history in this period, which I think historians have really barely even really scratched the surface of. And I think, I mean, stealth provided a little bit of a window onto that world, but I think it's a it's a profoundly important part of the history. And, you know, these engineers, obviously it affected some of them uh, very deeply. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. And, and certainly 
I agree. Like it's not something that's very well studied or, or deeply studied. It's people touch on it here and there and it's it's a perspective you hear. And I've heard some of that in some of my own work and O'Brien, you probably have too. Yeah. You were talking earlier about the kind of Cold War nostalgia. And I think this is one of the reasons why there's this Cold War nostalgia is that and, and there's this funny kind of perspective on Cold War history that so much of the Cold War, I mean the actual Cold War has kind of been elided from American memory. So there's this kind of, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis or Khrushchev banging his shoe, but otherwise a lot of the Cold War is kind of kind of lost uh, or a blank spot. Uh, and I think part of it is because of this pervasive secrecy is just so much of it is still, you know, if you think of the history of the Cold War as a canvas on a wall, like a painting, you know, what we know is just one very small corner of this canvas. And there's so much of it that is still unstudied and not understood by historians, not to mention the public. Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, is intertwined with the story of stealth, uh, and in particular with the F-117, as we talk about these things, is, you know, the F-117 is eventually at Tonopah uh, in Nevada, which is the same place that we run uh, America's secret MiG program. Thank mm-hmm. you, Evil Peck. Uh, so you've got the MiG program, you've got the F-117 program, quite possibly two of the most classified aspects of aviation history that are operating at the same airfield at the same time. Uh, And as you said, we are only just now beginning to scratch the surface of what went on out there. Yeah. Well, it's funny. So I'm doing some of these role histories. The engineers are talking, you know, I had to go out to the test site. I'm like, oh, where's the test site? And they're like, I can't say. I said, well, can you give me a hint? He said, it's very hot said, okay, that could be anywhere. It's, it's very uh, dry and dusty. Like, okay, that narrows it down a little bit. Okay, and I know and you know where it is. Uh, it's Area 51, right? It's in Nevada. We've known this for decades now. But uh, again, this is the secrecy issue and that, you know, they still, well, that has not been officially declassified. So I can't tell you, even though we're this wink and a nod and a smirk, like, okay, we all know where it was, but I can't officially come out and say it. But this is the kind of thing where, you know, they, they, they still can't say where they were testing these planes, which to me is remarkable. Understandable to a degree, but also remarkable. Yeah, it really does point to some of these broader issues around classification itself, but also just how those things kind of shape our perception in our society. And, and like you're saying, especially in that region where there's so many people affected by that. Brian, I didn't really get to your Disney, specifically to the Disney angle. Yeah, go ahead. So there's actually, so there is a specific Disney connection here. Well, there's a couple of Disney connections. And Brian, you brought up Disney uh, and Disneyland. So, um, I mean, the, the first connection is this seemingly kind of mundane episode. But so Northrop was having a lot of trouble with one of its designs that what eventually became known as Tacit Blue and specifically incorporating these curves into the area around the cockpit. And they just could not get this thing to work on the radar range. So one of their lead theorists, uh, one of their lead designers, a guy named Fred Ashiro, it's Northrop night at Disneyland. So Northrop has a, a company outing where they get the bus and they, everybody can go down and get the cheap passes and you bring your family to Disneyland. So Oshir is down there with his family and his kids are on the, uh, I forget which one it was, whether it's the Matterhorn or the teacups or flying saucers. But he's sitting there on the bench outside the ride and he's got a piece of, here we get back to the modeling clay. He's got a piece of modeling clay in his pocket and he's thinking about this problem. He's been turning it over in his mind. So he kind of idly pulls this modeling clay out and starts playing with it while he's sitting there on this bench at Disneyland. And his kids are whirling around on the ride and, you know, call it coincidence, call it divine inspiration or whatever. 
But he comes up with this modeling clay and comes up with something that he thinks is going to work. So he sticks this modeling clay back in his pocket with the design uh, intact, brings it in the next morning, puts it on a table uh, in the middle of the design room and says, build me a model of this. This is it. So they build the scale model of this thing, the, the modeling clay, and they take it to the uh, radar range and lo and behold, it works. So he's somehow Disneyland, sitting there at Disneyland, Fred Escher came up with this crucial breakthrough and how to incorporate curves into the design. Uh, so that's one Disney story. Uh, if we have time for another one, um, the second Disney connection is actually, so uh, there's a, one of the crucial figures at both companies. It's a guy named Richard Scherer. If you go back to the 50s, uh, Scherer was working at the Ames uh, Research Center uh, for the NACA, eventually NASA, and one of his first jobs as a young aerospace engineer, but he's moonlighting for a company, uh, a machine tool shop, where he'd gone and done some welding on his hot rod car, uh, here again in California context. So anyway, this company, what they're doing is they are building some of the initial rides for Disneyland. So Scherer starts moonlighting as an engineer uh, designing the teacups and flying Dumbo and the flying saucers and the Matterhorn. And this is what he's doing is kind of, you know, after work. And then he goes in and works at the, at the AIMS Center during the day. Now, fast forward 10, 15 years, and Cher ends up as one of the crucial uh, designers for the F-117 Lockheed. And then another three or four years, and he ends up at Northrop as one of their key designers on the B-2. So again, there's no direct connection between Cher's design work on, you know, the flying saucers for Disneyland back in the late 50s. And then the F-117, the B-2. But again, it's suggestive that the the only aerospace engineer to work on both the F-117 and the B-2 in a major capacity had helped design those first generation of rides at Disneyland 15 years earlier. So coincidence or more? Uh, I leave what? it to I leave it to you all to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to decide on that one. I think it's very reciprocal in that if you were to today go to uh, Disney's California Adventures in California or the Hollywood Studios theme park in Orlando, there are aspects of this relationship between Southern California and the aviation industry. Uh, models of airplanes, uh, hidden pictures of Hap Arnold. Of course, there's the Soarin' Over California ride, which all ties into this. Uh, so I think it's a very symbiotic relationship between these firms in Southern California and Disney that's that's really quite fascinating. Yeah, well, I'm just one last point to wrap that up is that I was just editing another oral history for our collection. And this is a guy who had worked, you know, in his entire career uh, for Southern California aerospace firms and then kind of basically semi-retired. Uh, and in the 90s, he went to work for Disneyland. He knew a lot about materials, material science, and he went to work for Disneyland doing stress fatigue on the roller coaster tracks, on uh, especially on Space Mountain. So here's an aerospace engineer then going to work for Disneyland, bringing his aerospace expertise back kind of full circle to these Disneyland rides. So it's kind of a neat little, you know, closing of the circle there. Well, I didn't expect this book to give me uh, uh, an appreciation for the teacups, but it certainly did. <laughs> um, I think that's all the time we have. But Peter, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Yeah. The book is Stealth, The Secret Contest to Invent Invisible Aircraft by Peter Westwick, available where finer books are sold. And we're all online at balloonstodrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook under digitalfishmedia.org. If you would like to send us an email or contact us for any reason, please visit balloonstodrones.com slash contact. And if you want to submit an article to us for publication, we love to get those. You can do that at balloonstodrones.com slash submissions. Thank you so much, and we will see you all next time.